Well, have you ever been fully convinced of something only to find maybe that you are wrong? Have you ever been an outright fan of something fully on board, in the corner of, sold out to, a particular idea, company, product, sports team, uh, person, movement inside of your life, only to find that through the course of time, either something or someone new made you question that previous idea or conclusion that you came to. You see, something happened and you weren't sure why or how, but the previous set of assumptions was now set aside for something new, or maybe not even for something new, but just for the ambiguity of what you did not know that you thought you knew. Have you ever been like fully on board even, and I'm not talking just the big heavy stuff like belief systems or you know, people who let you down, but you know, you were a all-out sports team of fill-in-the-blank growing up, and then something happened that your favorite player got traded away, or your dad said that we're no longer fans of that team, or whatever it was, and you switched around your allegiance, or you moved your allegiance because something happened or someone happened inside of that situation. You see, I, th- I think one of the things that we're going to talk about throughout this morning is Your basic system and how you operate and how you believe and how you act, most of us, we're going to continue largely in the direction that we're going, if not mainly for two things, the people that we meet or the things that happen inside of our lives. By and large, you'll continue to believe the same things, operate the same way, move in the same direction with your life, if not for the people you meet or the life events that happen to you or that you cause to happen inside of your life. And so on this particular day, I'm reminded of this fact, that life, when it happens, and when people come into our lives, things look different. And so Palm Sunday really is an ironic Sunday because of all the things that begin to happen and the events that are about to take place and just the movement of belief and momentum and, and where people think, and in particular, what they think about Jesus inside of this week. Now, to illustrate this, and this is nowhere... Again, it's not one of those big, heavy things, but just on a uh, kind of natural level. Several years ago, uh, Rachel began to tell me about Dave Ramsey and Financial Peace University. You see, her sister had gone through, you know, the the program FPU and uh, heard a couple other people, and she said, we should do Financial Peace University. To a guy and to a young husband, what I heard is, dude, you are terrible with money, and we need someone to help us out. And so I resisted because my dad taught me this healthy skepticism of, get-rich-quick schemes and so-called experts and all these fancy answers, I could do math. We weren't delinquent on too many of our bills. We didn't have that much debt. And, you know, there were all these different reasons that I thought we don't necessarily need that. We're good. We're fine. And so this continued, you know, maybe just off and on for a couple of months. And then we found ourselves on our way from uh, Sharptown to Lancaster for an all-church retreat. And uh, this was pre the days of, you know, your phone just picks up or your your car picks up whatever your phone is playing or even an auxiliary jack. This was the days of either CDs, cassette tapes, or radio. And so Rachel says, I brought with me the Dave Ramsey CDs. Would you like to listen to them? Now, we're going to a couple's retreat, so I don't know what the right answer is inside of this moment. Um, I was pretty sure the right answer was not, no, let's listen to sports talk radio for the next two hours. That wasn't going to fly. Um, occasionally we had listened to, you know, books on tape or comedians, you know, on our long drives to Kentucky because after a while music just gets old. 
And so I said, sure, why not? And so we popped in the first CD. Let me tell you, six months later, we had started Financial Peace University at Sharptown. I had listened to all 13 CDs two times each. Uh, I now was all things Dave Ramsey. I was listening to podcasts multiple times a week. We were doing budgeting. I was scrutinizing all of Rachel's purchases, not necessarily my own at this point yet. Uh, But something happened that just shifted the whole thing around. Now, this was over a six-month period, and it was something not significant, but not extremely significant, not life-altering, like the point of what you believe about Jesus, but there's something that happens largely will continue down the path that we're on, if not for the things that happen or the people we're introduced to inside of our lives. You know that we live in an opinionated age. Everybody knows exactly what they believe about everything, and they're not afraid to share it with you. And so we live in that. One of the things that I get cynical about is when I see somebody who is, you know, all in with one idea, and then all of a sudden they're now the expert on the opposite idea because they don't want to talk about what they used to believe, but now I know the truth is over here. And there's like, there's no middle ground. It's just hardcore and whatever it is that they're opinionated about at that particular time. In fact, I found it somewhat ironic and maybe troubling about me is the thing that I am most opinionated about is opinionated people. And, and I don't know if that's just, you know, something inside of my life. But, you know, today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday begins with uh, Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem for that final time. And they take palm branches, and they take their cloaks, and they spread them on the ground, and they say, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You are the King of Israel. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is the height of our anticipation, of our expectation. You are the one. Now, by the end of the week, the crowd's not saying, Hosanna. Maybe the same people are saying crucify. By the end of the week, there is no pep rally, but there's a trial. By the end of the week, the crowd is still large in Jerusalem, but it's not a crowd of expectation about Jesus, but it's a crowd of disappointment and rejection and anger. And you begin to think, what would take place inside of five days that would bring that type of turnaround? What would happen inside of five days that would make a crowd that has their arms in the air instead their fingers pointing? What happens inside of the week that we call Palm Sunday? And so before we get there, I just want to read with you uh, the passage that describes Palm Sunday, and then we're going to get to uh, our character. We've been looking at those who had a front row seat of the cross. And so we have uh, one individual to talk about today, the centurion, who I think typifies for us Uh, the message for Palm Sunday. But before we get there, uh, read these words out of Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, 
while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of them and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so the height of expectation, this sets in motion the events that would take place on Holy Week. Jesus rides into town, and inside of this royal entrance, uh, he meets this parade of people who are there to celebrate his coming, celebrate what was about to happen, at least inside of their own minds. The messianic expectations, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Translation, this situation which we're now living, things are about to look a whole lot different. And so the irony of Palm Sunday, hope and optimism is gone by Friday. Widespread public opinion that's so positive and hopeful about who Jesus is becomes shouts of crucify him. Whether it's the same crowd or not, you could tell that there's definitely something that begins to shift in a mighty way inside of Jerusalem that week. It brings us face to face with the question, with several questions actually, who is Jesus? Is he, does he have authority inside of my life? And maybe the second part of that is, am I currently living underneath that authority? What is his plan for redemption? What does that look like, not just in what he did, but how he wants me to live inside of my world? You see, it would be like 14 months ago, 15 months ago, when the Philadelphia Eagles came back in and landed in Philadelphia. And there was, there's still debate as to how many, but let's say 2 million people in Philadelphia for the parade. This would be like five days later, the coach is fired, the general manager is fired, Eight of the players have been released. It's that much of a shock of what you experience on Sunday compared to what happens on Friday. And I think these questions lie at the heart of what begins to take place. And we see that perhaps most clearly in uh, a gentleman that we know nothing about. Uh, He's just known as the centurion. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a a warning. In about 30 seconds, I'm going to play a clip for you from The Passion of the Christ. This is not the most violent clip in the movie, but it is something that might make you uncomfortable. And if you have small children with you, it might be a time just to, just to make arrangements for that. But I think we see uh, portrayed there the centurion's reaction, what happens inside of those moments. The centurion is a Roman soldier. Even though Malchus worked for the temple, Peter was a disciple. Simon was a pilgrim, was coming into town. Most of the people we talked about leading up to now, either were believers in Jesus or at least had a framework inside of the temple system, the religious system. Even Pilate knew enough of the message to know about what a Messiah was to bring, even if that was his greatest fear in his reign. But the Roman centurion maybe was oblivious, knew nothing about the Old Testament, about who Jesus was, and yet inside of this moment, uh, he offers forth, a statement that becomes a background for all those who put our faith and our trust in Jesus. We're going to read about him, but before that, take a look at this clip that describes a little bit about who he is and, and what took place inside of those moments. 
Matthew chapter 27. Verse number 50, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many people, holy people who had died, were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and even went into the Holy Spirit city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. When they saw how he died and all the things that had happened, surely this man is the son of God. Luke tells us that he said, surely this was a righteous man. Mark as well, surely this man is indeed the son of God. This is the centurion just doing his job, probably witness to a hundred or more crucifixions. This is a convicted criminal, sentenced to death, that he oversees. Now, centurion, this is not just your average Roman soldier. This centurion century means this is a guy who was over 100 men. There was a legion of forces. A Roman legion was 5,000 soldiers. 5,000 soldiers sent uh, into some of the occupied lands to serve as peacekeeping and kind of law enforcement just to kind of be Rome's heavy hand inside of these regions. And so the centurion is one of 50 officers over indeed this legion of 5,000 men. Now maybe during Passover, if, if things heightened, maybe there was another legion on call or moved into place. But by and large, the centurion and his 49 other co-centurion leaders were stationed inside of Israel just to make sure that things were kept at peace. To be a centurion was uh, a prestigious thing. You were an officer. You were more like an Annapolis or a West Point grad. You were a learned man. You were literate, at least 30 years of age with military experience, upright in your conduct, sharp in your dress, clean in your appearance. This was somebody who was not just a rough soldier. This was somebody who was the cream of the crop. In fact, Bill was slightly off when he said we have Steve Ruff with us. In fact, I think we have First Lieutenant Stephen Ruff of the U.S. Army chaplain, like this is somebody like Steve, you know. So if we brought Steve, you would say this is a well-groomed, well-kept, brilliant, educated mountain of a man who, you know, so now we're really going to embarrass Steve, you know, for being here today. But And so what would it take for a man like that to come to the revelation that he did? When all of his life he had been moving in this direction and the pattern of his life was set, until something that happened and someone he met. All his life was moving in one direction, one confession of a centurion. Caesar is Lord. The ultimate allegiance of your life is Caesar is Lord, and yet here inside of one moment, with three hours with a criminal, far from home, where you can not only lose your job and the respect of the men underneath you, 
surely this man is the Son of God. That's the confession of the centurion. It's not a casual, casual reference. It's not a sign of respect. It's not a moment of sympathy. This was a game changer where his whole life is moving in the direction of Caesar's Lord. And what can I do to honor Caesar to I've just seen God face to face. So back to our three questions. First of all, who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, the earliest confessions of the Christian faith surrounded this issue. The earliest one that we read through uh, the book of Acts and then the Apostle Paul is just three words that even sometimes came with a little symbol that the early church would do. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Those three things were the centrality that if you boil all the gospel down, the early church, it was this. Jesus is Lord. The second one you probably see is a bumper sticker on cars, and it's not just because the disciples were fishermen, but it's because this meant something as an acronym. The symbol of a fish, uh, the word for fish in Greek is ichthus. The letters of ichthus, like an acronym, spell out the earliest confession of the Christian church. The I is for Iesus, Jesus. The key, C-H-I, key is, is the letter, is for Christos, Christ, Jesus Christ. The uh, letter in, in the middle you might know from chemistry class or something, you know, for fraternities or um, sororities, is the theta is, is the letter, and that's for theos, which is God, theology, what we talk about something being theological. The thing that looks like a Y is weos, uh, son, and the thing that looks like an E is actually an S, soter, or savior. The earliest confession and of the Christian church was Jesus is Lord, and we're going to use this symbol to demonstrate who we are in the midst of perse- persecution. You'll know that if you're a Jesus follower, if this shows up, Jesus Son, or Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. That's what the centurion says. Surely this man, Jesus they call the Christ, is the Son of God. C.S. Lewis then goes on to say that you have no middle ground of what you can do with Jesus. He's either the Lord, meaning everything he said was true and I believe him, or he's a liar or a lunatic. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. You can't have Jesus part way and say he was a good teacher, he was a nice guy, he gives us a nice model to live from, because that was never an option on the table. Because who he is and what he said about himself, he's either crazy a scam artist, or exactly who he says he was, the Lord of our lives. And so every person is faced with the question, who is Jesus? And if I believe he is is who he says he is, then it demands a response from my life. And my life looks different because of what has happened and who I've met. Now the second, does he have authority inside of my life? First of all, let me answer that. Philippians 2 says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day every person you know will utter the words, Jesus is Lord. It will either just be on this side of death or on the other side of death. There's no mistaking whether or not those words come out of our mouths or not. It's just a matter of when and what that means then for how we live and where we spend eternity. 
if he is Lord, and as Colossians says, he's the firstborn over all creation. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. We read that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the beginning and the end. Then that means if he can hold the whole world inside of his hands, then he's also, also worthy of holding my life in his hands. George Ladd said that the key to the Christian confession is the aspect that Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, then that means something with my day-to-day living. I wonder with the centurion, if it was the way in which Jesus treated his mother and the followers that were there. I wonder if it's the way in which he talked to the thief on the cross. I wonder if it's the gentleness and the humility and the, and the confidence with which he died. Or I wonder, simply as Matthew says, if it's when he saw the way he died and when he saw the earthquake, it did it. A lot of people talk about Jesus as being the Lord of their life until it means they have to live under the control and direction of the one that they say is the Lord of their life. It's an easy thing to offer on Palm Sunday is to say, wave your palm branches. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but I'm not going to do that. Hosanna, you're the God who saves. Nope, not going to live that way. God, I need you. You're the one who is before all things, and you're the Savior of the world. But I think I'm just going to do it my way. Does he have authority inside of your life? One day he certainly will, but does he today? The third question. What's his plan of redemption? We see his plan of redemption when he dies on the cross. It's interesting that you could have been a person in a crowd that ate when bread and loaves were multiplied. You could have gone home that night with a full belly, but not yet place your life under the lordship of Jesus. You could have been in the crowd on Palm Sunday and, and say, we've heard him speak. He's inspiring. He's the one we've been looking for. He's it. He's it. And then by the time you get to Friday, no, this is not what we expected. We expected God to come in and just like he overturned the money tables in the temple, just like he stood up to people in authority, this is going to be the week that Israel is no longer an occupied nation, but Jesus is going to be king. And if he's not king, he's at least, at least going to cleanse things out of the way so that we can have the king who's going to be king. But that's not how he operates. You know that God is intensely interested in the circumstances of your life? But the problem is, we cannot use the circumstances of our lives to evaluate the activity of God. Let me say that again, that God is intensely interested in the circumstances of your life, but we run into problems. We cannot evaluate the goodness and the activity of God by what we see in circumstances. Because you know that your life and my life, there's a never-ending bottom to the things that we could ask for. Things could always be a little bit better. We could always have a little bit more money. We could always be a little bit more happy. There's always a new job that we should get or a promotion that we've certainly earned or ways that we know that we've been mistreated. And if we evaluate the activity of God inside of our lives purely by what we see around us, we'll always end up like the crowd on Sunday saying, yes, here he comes, and on Friday saying, that's not what we expected, that's not at all what we want. The circumstances of your life are definitely impacted by the God who walks with you, but they're not the way that we evaluate him. 
The way you evaluate the things that your faith rests on are not God's movement inside of the circumstances of your life. Your faith is rooted and grounded in what happened and who you met. Lives change, things change, opinions change inside of our lives when something happens and we meet someone new. And so the centurion with no religious upbringing, with no reason to believe or think that his life should change on that day, experienced something revolutionary and saw in the way that Jesus died something that brought a conclusion out of his life, surely this man is the Son of God. Do you know today he doesn't want you to throw down your coat? He wants you to lay down your life. He's not asking you today for you to wave your palm branches and lift up your hands super high and continue to go and live your own way, but that your hands and your feet and your mouth and your finances and your influence might be his. He's not asking you just for utter, to utter empty words of praise, but that coming from your heart is one who trusts in and looks for what God is doing and going to do inside of your life. You know, history records another parade that took place. Maybe it's the same year, we don't know, but in A.D. 30, Jewish historians tell us that there was a parade where Pontius Pilate came into the western gate of the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week, at the beginning of Passover Week. And this procession happened because uh, during Passover had been a heightened time in the past where uh, the Jews had expected one to come and to overthrow the authorities. And so what better way to dissuade this than to have a parade with Pontius Pilate in the front and valiant horses and soldiers with shiny helmets and the brute force of Rome coming walking into Eastern Gate, the very opposite side of the city where Jesus enters. Maybe this centurion was there inside of this procession. I read someone who said, There are two parades that are always taking place. One that's bright and shiny and powerful and magnificent and offers offers you everything you could possibly want. The other one that's marked by humility. And it's not very glamorous, but it offers you everything you could possibly need. Which parade do you want to attend? Which parade marks how you see Jesus, how you respond to his authority inside of your life, and what not only his redemption looks like for you, but how it creates a pattern for you to live. Shiny and glamorous, everything you could possibly want. Humble, plain, nothing magnificent about it, but everything you could possibly need. Not only for you, but to make a difference with your life that in the end, your life counts for something beyond just you. So it's Palm Sunday. More than just a day to wave palm branches and say Hosanna, but a day we can consider the fact, what exactly are we looking for? Who is Jesus? Does he have authority inside of my life? And what does redemption look like for me even right here and right now? Let's pray together. There's going to be a lot of activity this week. For many of us, we have the same demands and calendar that we normally keep. 
In addition, we're going to take in a cantata performance and maybe a, a kid's show, a Monday Thursday or a Good Friday service. And all those things are wonderful. But it's possible that we could be so distracted by the religious activities of Holy Week, just like for more than 100,000 people in Jerusalem, that we could be busy and yet we could miss Jesus. How do you respond today to his authority inside of your life? Where are the places, what are the ways that we're expecting him to move? Maybe sometimes do we evaluate our faith based on what we see happening around us more than who he says he is. God, I would pray that you would speak deeply to our hearts today. That your invitation would ring true, that we can place our faith and our hope in you. You're the one we've been looking for. You're the one in whom is our hope. You're the one who wants to bring redemption even to the the deep levels of hurt and pain inside of our lives. So God, we ask that you would come and that you would work, not just today, but inside of these next seven days. That as we remember what you've done for us, Lord, that it would make a difference in how we live and in who we are. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.